What is up, Seek Outside podcast listeners? How y'all doing? Hope you guys are doing good. I know uh, we've been away from the podcast for a while here. Um, just taking a break, doing other stuff, you know, here at Seek Outside. Uh, we, we, we have a lot of things on our plates. New, new products coming out, testing, um, you know, videos to be made. So that is why we were away. We were away for a while, but uh, just wanted to l- kind of let you guys know uh, the podcast is going to be back now. Um, what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be releasing the podcast in seasons. Essentially, we're just going to record, I don't know, X amount, probably around seven, eight. Um, and we're going to be releasing, uh, releasing them uh, one per like season, calendar season, right? So this is going to be the fall one. We'll have another another bunch lined up for the winter, spring, summer, so forth. Um, just makes it a little bit easier on us um, to, to do the other stuff that we're, we're doing here at Seek Outside. Um, but I wanted to put this out there. If you guys have topics that you want to hear on this podcast, because uh, this is going to be a more limited, um, you know, probably only going to be coming out with around 24 episodes a year instead of the weekly ones, hit us up if you have topics that you want to hear us uh, chat about, um, whether it's gear related or, or otherwise, um, you can send an email to podcast at seekoutside.com or DM us on Instagram or Facebook, or whatever. So today we have our interview with uh, Shane Weiss. Um, he's from Weiser Precision. They make super dope, innovative, American-made, um, you know, tripod hookups, and they have they have like a an ultralight pulley system they make all sorts of like innovative products so make sure you check them out so anyway hope you guys enjoy the podcast welcome to the seek outside podcast and then you should, you think that's bad see ryan on the phone in the office <laughs> Welcome to the Seek Outside podcast. It is the end of August and the Seek Outside crew is fresh off of our Alaskan caribou hunt. We got Owen Tim here and we are going to start this podcast off with a segment we're going to call Alaska Hot Takes. And I think the the point of this is uh, we're going to try to hit on some, some subjects that or maybe some small things that while it's fresh in our mind. Uh, that we can give to any prospective Alaska travelers that they can uh, use in the future here. You want to start it off, Owen? Yeah, yeah. So Alaskan hot take, number mm-hmm. one. Biggest hot take I have. If you can never see the mountains there because of the clouds, what's so cool about it? Hot that is, take. That is a hot take. Hot take. Well, but we got really good weather. We that was like, we got... Uh, we were up there for a caribou hunt. Mm-hmm. For anybody that doesn't uh, follow Instagram or anything like that, we were up there for a caribou hunt. We were doing some filming. We were there for five days, and the longest it rained was probably two hours or last night, I would say. Yeah, two or three hours at night, and then it was pleasant during the day compared to the la- other times I've been up there. Yeah. Still cloudy. Yeah. You know? But- yeah. What's your Alaskan hot take? One of my Alaska hot takes is flying in a Super Cub is actually pretty badass. That's not really a hot take. No, but no, I would, I would, I, here's I a hot take. Like for some people, you know, for some people it causes them anxiety. They're like, oh shit, we're going to have to fly this tiny little bush plane. That was like the coolest shit that I've ever experienced. It's man. pretty bad. No, no, I shouldn't say the coolest, but it was awesome. Yeah. I would say, here's a hot take. Alaskan, uh, flying in Alaska over remote areas on a Super Cub feels safer than being on an airline. And the reason is, it does. you know you can land anywhere. There's not that many trees in Alaska, at mm-hmm. least the part where we were. So yeah. kind yeah. of, that's a hot take. Plus it also makes you feel good uh, that you hear that the majority of pilots up in Alaska have had some sort of failure at some point. Yeah. And most of them are still alive. Most. You know? yeah. I mean, we did hear a couple stories while we were up there of uh, – of pilots augering in, as they call it, basically flying into a mountainside. But I feel like 
I feel like uh, it's kind of like riding a motorcycle, you know, flying one of them super cubs. It's not if, it's when. Yeah. Which makes you feel better because most of the time if you have a if you have a, a, a 747 crashing, somebody's dying. Yeah, it's usually not going well for you. It's not going well. Usually not not a high success rate there. Not not very high, no. A um, couple other things that I just want to touch on from our Alaska trip. So, um, you know, we – and for anybody that follows us on YouTube, you're going to be seeing some of the products here, um, some of the products of this trip coming out in the next six months. Um, one of the big missions of this trip was gear testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, did we have some failures. We did. Which we, is good. It's good, yeah. Failures are good. Both on our end, which was okay because we were testing a lot of prototypes. Yep. Um, however, we also had a lot of on-the-market products fail on us. On the market? Uh, yeah, like already on the market, like not seek outside stuff. Yeah, stuff that we bought. yeah, yeah. We did. We had a water filter. It wasn't a failure, but got all like needed lube, if you may. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of annoying. Good thing we all had a water filter. What else? I had my sandals break, which unheard of. <laughs> and then... Um, there were Chacos. Chacos, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... We had an outdoor edge knife uh, come apart, which I feel like I've never heard of that happening. Yeah. Want it for anybody listening where you replace your blade on like the, if you ever used an outdoor edge knife where you replace your blade, the actual metal that's part of the knife, there are two knobs on there. Those are actually screws and one of those came off and so you couldn't replace the blade. So something to be wary of. What else did we have fail? Well, um, your DeLorme. Oh yeah. The screen cracked. My DeLorme cracked. Um, we had a silky saw blade break yeah. on on uh, cutting some bone. That was our fault, though. They, yeah, that was. <laughs> I mean, they're not they're not designed to go sideways. No, no, uh, they aren't. Yeah, we had a we had a lot of stuff break, but you know, uh, that's what these these trips are good for prototype wise. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, we didn't have any tent failures. No, um, no tent failures. We're pretty failures. pretty pretty good at making a tent. We also had some backpacks that we were testing, um, and we had a few failures there, but it was our first prototype, so we actually hadn't even gotten to wear one around, <laughs> um, so just going straight to Alaska with it and packing out half a caribou, um, had a failure there, uh, both packs that we brought, but we had our standard packs, which did amazing, Oh yeah. but I think once these new ones come out, they're going to be pretty fancy. Yeah, as long as uh, we can get them not to fail like that. Yeah. Which should be pretty easy. It should easy, be super but, easy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just funny that, uh, you know, that was uh, the first trip that they were taking on. In just, the mo- just the most extreme, like yeah. where you shouldn't have a gear failure is <laughs> the first hey, trip. We got this brand new prototype one version. Let's yeah. take them out. Yeah. See how it goes. Literally. Literally. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, just goes to show that you can uh, you can prepare as much as you want. You can bring multiple. Yep. But uh, gear's still going to fail. It is. It's just part of life. All right. So, this is going to be a new segment of the podcast that we're going to be doing. We came up with the name Happy Hour for it. And essentially what me and Owen are going to be doing here is we are going to... I, before the show, I looked up three headlines that I saw on the internet. Um, I tried to pick some outlandish ones. Um, and mind you, these are minimally researched, okay? So don't come at us when, uh, when, when we um, are, are chatting about these things and maybe, you know, you have some contradictory information. That's not what this podcast is about. That's not what happy hour is about. Happy hour is about bullshitting with your boys and that's exactly what we're going to do here so the first headline that i'm okay. going to read to you is uh swedish boy punches brown bear in the face to save dad from attack 
Okay. Okay. Now this is like this is like I don't know. As a man, I've definitely thought at multiple points that uh, you know if a bear comes along, I could probably handle it. You know, it's like you have that fantasy in your head. Oh, I'm gonna grab my knife out of my pocket, flip it open real quick, give a quick slice to the jugular. <laughs> And uh, we all know that, that odds are you're probably not going to do that. because it's, it's, uh, it's the same idea as like if you had to land a plane and you've never flown a plane before. Just the male mentality. You're just like. I could do that. Oh, easy. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so this happened. This was in Sweden. Um, so uh, uh, this, this boy and his dad were pursuing a 300-pound female brown bear. Um, it was, it was part of like a, a sanctioned, I don't know what kind of hunt it was, but it sounded like it was like a group hunt, like almost like a traditional thing that they do over there. Um, but they were pursuing this 300 pound, uh, bear when it turned around and started attacking the father. So what the kid did, he was about, he was 13. He, he decided to go hero mode on this brown bear and punch this bear right in the face, which actually broke his wrist. This kid broke his wrist on this on this bear's face. That's like ultimate bar story when he gets old enough to go to a bar. Oh yeah, so I broke my my wrist on a brown bear's face. <laughs> Pretty fucking epic. Um, so then the the bear turns around to the kid, starts attacking the kid, which gives his dad time to shoot the bear, uh, and the, and the bear died. But uh, the the both the kid and the dad had scratches. Um, they both had to go to the hospital, but they were fine. That's crazy. Crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And uh, you and I just had a, a brown bear or uh, grizzly bear experience in, yeah. in Alaska there where you got a little spicy, made yeah. your uh, made the the, shat, the sack shrink a little bit. but Couldn't, couldn't shit for three days after that one with all the <laughs> yeah, pucker. Exactly. But I could imagine this being a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, that was that, that was intense enough already. I yeah. would have, you know, the headline if it was me and my dad would have been "Man killed, other boy, <laughs> boy ran boy away." <laughs> boy trips dad to save himself to uh, versus bear. But uh, so this was interesting because it kind of took me down a rabbit hole. You know, I was thinking there's there's so many different uh, perspectives online, especially of bear defense and what you're gonna do. And odds are, I mean. It's a tough situation if if you get into a, a situation with a, a grizzly bear or mm. a brown bear, yeah. more so than a black bear. But um, I ended up kind of doing some uh, research on uh, – now, these are outliers, and this is what I'm about to say here should not form anybody's opinions on bear defense yeah. because this, this is outliers, and I literally re- researched this for like 15 minutes, tried to take – uh, the rabbit hole to the darker uh, portions of the internet, but the, the road less traveled. Exactly, but I ended up on uh, a couple websites. The first one was uh, Sporting Classics Daily, and it had a an article kind of going over like all sorts of bear defense cases where they, you know, where they knew what caliber uh, the people were using, and there was four there were four cases uh, that they had found where a nine millimeter was used in defense against uh and and of those four three of them were against grizzlies right so these are people using nine millimeter which is true most people would not say it would be a good bear defense but all three of them were successful really yeah and then i went to another article in ammo land this was ammoland.com which i don't know the you know the reputation of that who knows but um but they said they listed like they probably had like 10 instances um where uh they there was a grizzly bear defense with a 22 no thanks yeah and they were all uh, they were all successful really all the ones listed were successful they had a quote from like a uh fish and wildlife person saying uh, that you should never shoot a grizzly bear with a twenty-two because most of the time it ends up killing it. Now, bear defense, a little tricky, but there, you know, there's there's some things out there that uh, might contradict the the popular opinion. Again, 
you're not trying to find, not trying to tell anybody to take a a 22 out no um but uh i don't know your thoughts on bear defense and and this guy this kid having an all-time story to take the bars and tell people that he broke his wrist on a bear's face number one pretty awesome story um this guy's gonna get a lot of girls he is at the bars he is uh number two you know i would take it's all right it's the same way in hunting right if if you go out and you're shooting a 338 wind mag or some like a big rifle right and you can't shoot it well, then there's no point. Mm-hmm. So if you can land 10 rounds of 22 into a bear when it's your last resort, it might be more effective than the three rounds of 44 mag you got off at them and only one hit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a hard hard telling not knowing. It is hard yeah. telling not knowing. It is hard sure. telling not knowing. But, you know, it's uh, I'm not going to take a 22. No. No. Well, I think part of this was a lot in reading some of these cases where a 22 was used. It was like, <clears throat> you know, a bear was on some dude's porch or something like that. And Trying most to, people yeah. have like a 22 around. Most, yeah. most people probably, I would say the majority of people, unless they're actively going out into bear country, they don't have a 10 millimeter just no. laying around. So no, I mean, you might. Pro- it depends. Yeah. But. It's probably a little bit of uh that's correlation. Probably, it's probably my quickest access gun. I guess you're right. Yeah. Like 1022. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just whip it up. Yep. All right. Next one. So, this is kind of a, an interesting subject. Uh, I can imagine it probably gets a little, there's a little controversy around this. I have, um, I'm not super hip to the through hiking uh, FKT world, but there was. A new speed record set on the Pacific Crest Trail. Guy's name was Carol Sabe or Carell Sabe, something like that. Uh, but he beat the previous PCT record of 51 days by five whole days. New record is 46 days, 12 hours and 56 uh, and 50 minutes. Uh, for those who don't know, the PCT is 2,652 miles. Uh, with a total elevation gain and loss of 315,000 feet. Easy. 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 I do that on my morning runs and rides. Yeah. Heading over to, heading, heading over to, to, to work this yeah. morning. You probably did pretty close to that. Yeah. Now, this is where it gets tricky. And this is uh, what I'm not really sure what to make of. So, um, now... This guy was more of a, a runner, right? So he's essentially running it. You know, I'm sure he walked portions of it. Speed but walking, yeah. yeah. But um, he did have people who filtered his water, who carried his pack, set up camp, and cleaned up after him. Really? The whole time. Yeah. It begs the question. Is that, is, yeah. Is that yeah. legitimate? I yeah. guess. I mean, I guess it's a person getting it done right but mm-hmm. like is it it seems uh i don't know it seems a little dirty it seems like it shouldn't be considered in the same realm as somebody that is actually hiking so like if you're if you're really trying to get like if you're a backpacker or a through hiker mm-hmm. i don't think that you should be comparing your time to this guy who yeah. i mean if you're having somebody filter water i mean if you're over the course of 55 days filtering water especially if you're running yeah that's probably a whole other like one or two days worth of yeah, water filtering literally, literally. knowing those ultralight water filters i mean setting up camp yeah. um you know i know like in like mountain bike fkts and, and stuff like that like they'll have a support car so i mean i guess I guess maybe there's a difference of like self-supported versus supported, but it should have its own class, like yeah. a supported FKT versus self-supported because yeah, it doesn't even, if you don't have friends along your whole trail and everything, it's like, yeah. Well, and so, so it does, it does out of, you know, clarity. There are, there are like self-supported and then unsupported, or uh, there are, un- there are fully supported and self-supported. Yeah. But I still think, like there's there should be another classification because what he did was like 
essentially just an ultra run, right? Which is, I mean, not Insane, to take anything yeah. away from Incredible it. Incredible athlete. He crushed it. Yeah. I could never do that. No. But there's another, there should be like a middle class where it's like you're, you're hiking it because I, I guess it kind of gets into semantics where it's like self-supported. Are you carrying everything with you? Because, like, that's what I think of. Like, when you and and Josh did the Cocapelli Trail, yeah, you I were doing, like, a self- self-supported effort. You yeah. took in all your food. Filtered uh, around water, set up our own camp. Yes. Yeah, everything. Now, some people do unsupported or do supported where they get, like, food cached along the way, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, a cat. Yeah, you, I mean, but it's a hard – there's not, like, a hard line because I feel like even if – if you drove, so, so like there's a guide company on here that does stuff for the Cocapelli. They do a tour where mm-hmm. they drive the van along with you, have all the food, make dinners and stuff. Mm-hmm. To me, that's supported. But like if I cashed a gallon of water somewhere on my way to Moab to ride back or something like that, if I stashed some water and maybe a little bit of food, I would still kind of call it self-supported, I guess. Yeah. In my opinion. But unless, I don't know, it's hard. It, it's, it's tricky. all a hard line yeah and it's tricky with those through hikes because they're go you know most of these people I, I don't know if anybody's ever done it with all their food on their back i i doubt it i seriously doubt it maybe some crazy dude did it with like a, pulling a ski pole behind him or something like that but they're well, all usually, most people are usually stopping. those guys yeah usually they go to town for a yeah. day and then get back at the post train. office yeah so I don't know. It, it was interesting. I mean, definitely uh, a feat. This guy has a couple other, um, couple other other records. Uh, Appalachian Trail. He has the the uh, the FKT on that. Um, fastest known, fastest known time on that. So he's a, he's a beast. But I just thought it was funny that like somebody carried his pack, filtered that's, water. Yeah, that's, uh, the the pack being carried. That's where it's like. Or like not carrying your own water, not carrying, not carrying your own food for like just the day. Like I feel like that makes it guided, right? Like, yeah, it, it feels guided. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of how I felt. Uh, any idea what his what his um, his trade is? Like what he what he does for work? <laughs> uh, I don't know. He's well, a dentist. Ah, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Hilarious. He had to reschedule like 300 appointments to to get this done because this year on the PCT, the weather was like so crazy, so it got pushed back. And I mean, regardless, congrats to this guy. He crushed it. Yeah. All right. The last headline that I read that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, So there is a 28-year-old man out of Oregon. Uh, his name is Walter Erickson, busted for poaching, poached elk and deer in Oregon. Okay. Um, now, he has a very interesting setup. So, he has to go to jail because he, he poached, you know, all sorts of big bulls, big yeah. bucks, all that stuff. Um, but his jail sentence is only for the 14 days of rifle season for the next three years. So, he's like... He's going in, it, like, he gets to live, basically, I don't know what rifle season is there in Oregon, but call it the 1st through the 14th. He lives outside of jail for the whole year until October 1st, goes into jail, gets out the 15th. Really? hmm Yeah. That is, I mean, I don't know what the actual crime for poaching is. Obviously, it's not, poaching is bad. This seems like ridiculous. Like I feel like it should either. I feel like it should be like a longer, like actually doing time. Yeah, that, I mean that's kind of how I felt because I mean it's like essentially he's just getting he's, he's just, getting free meals for yeah 14 he's, he's days. just getting free meals and a place to stay for fourteen days. I mean, granted, a place you probably don't want to stay, but I feel like that's not. I can't imagine he's going to like the state penitentiary for fourteen days. He's probably going to the county jail where it's. You know, in terms of jail goes, it's probably on the more cush side. Um, I, I thought it was interesting too. It's like, man, like, what is? Search that up. Search up. What is the crime for poaching in Oregon? Well, so, um, like, did he talk his way out? I just feel like this is so small. Uh, that that's what I thought too. Uh, now, but it did sound so. Oregon 
is uh, Oregon is one of the more uh, like poached states, if you will. They, really? they have a lot more poaching cases. Uh, nearly 5,000 animals were poached in 2022 alone. That's insane. Yeah. Um, and that they knew about. That they knew about. Yeah. Of, of course, all, all sorts of animals are, are poached without it. But so they, what I was reading in this article was that they just patched, passed some new legislature that actually made, turned his crime for like some of the crimes that he was, um, convicted of turned that made them, uh, uh, felonies instead of misdemeanors. So what the way I took that and a lot of these poaching cases, depending on the severity, of course, a lot of them don't serve jail time. Really? It's, yeah. It's like big fines. I mean, some of the biggest cases in the last few years, uh, there has not been jail time or at least not this significant of jail time. You know, sometimes it'll be like three days, Big thing is fines and restitution, but uh, Oregon just had like they post they passed a new law in 2019 that uh, that kind of puts more of a an emphasis on prosecuting these poachers. But it's a very very interesting um, arrangement, I guess, because uh, so he owes seventy five thousand dollars in in restitution or fines. Um, but he poached 22 animals over the, over the time period, uh, or sorry, he has 22 charges, um, including illegally killing deer, elk, leaving game animals to waste, trespassing. Um, but from what I've seen, this seems like a very unlikely or a a very uncommon punishment. And that's, I guess that's probably why it made the news. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of felt the same way as you. Like that's not uh, kind of seems. I mean, for poaching twenty-two animals, I mean seventy-five thousand. Like, good, he's got to pay that, you know. But like the, I mean, really, he's only getting like forty-five days of jail time. Yeah, and it's and split it's broken over three up. years. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like going to summer camp. Like I don't know. Seems yeah. like seems like it should be harsher, especially just to deter more people, because like. If, yeah. if getting caught's only that, I guess, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that harsh. Yeah. Especially, it seems like he was a, a, a mess. I mean, yeah, he was yeah, 28 years old. And I think you hit it on the head earlier. I mean, uh, most of these poachers, they've been doing it for a while. Yeah. There's a lot of things that don't get caught. No. So, it was interesting. Um, what, is the, what is the fine in Colorado? Fine for poaching. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think the big thing is restitution. So like they'll, you know, they'll put a, a number on like a six by six bull elk, uh, amounts to this amount of money, a seven by seven amounts to this amount of money. Um, and then I think there's fines on top of that, but, uh, let's see. That's interesting that they would do that. Yeah. 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 So it looks like, uh, in Colorado, Fines for illegal hunting range from one thousand to ten thousand, and a maximum of one year in jail. Um, uh, the the severest penalties apply to killing of big game, trophy animals, and gray wolves. Other than that, animal other animals. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's strange, but yeah. uh, I mean, I guess like as opposed to not getting jail time, they're they're just like this dude's such a menace. We gotta throw him in jail. Throw him in the clink during, during rifle season. season. He's uh, he's such a dangerous guy. Do they make it so that they can't hunt ever again, or is there anything on that? I would I would assume so. I mean, most of those guys they get their their license revoked for X amount of years. Yeah. Um. I don't know though. It's it's interesting because a lot of these, from what I've seen, a lot of these big poachers. It's not like they get a lifetime. It's like they should. Almost, it's like they should almost switch it around. The only time you get to be out of jail is is during rifle season, yeah. so you have to yeah. legally hunt. That's <laughs> yeah, that would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah, just for a year. Yeah, you you get out for rifle season. That's it, buddy. That's all. Yeah, sorry, dude. Yeah, I don't know. Really drive it through his brain, you know. You gotta, you gotta hunt in the right time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that is it for current events here. Um, and now I hope you guys enjoy this interview.
Well, we got Shane Weiss on the podcast from Wiser Precision. Uh, how you doing, Shane? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, of course. Um, so just real quick, before we uh, get going here, why don't you give yourself just a quick introduction, maybe uh, let us know what the company is about, where you guys are from, when you started, all that good stuff. You betcha. All right, well, you guys already know the company name, Wise Precision. Uh, I'm Shane Wise, so I'm the, the owner and the founder of the company. Um, we make ultralight and long-range hunting gear, um, and I feel like we've done a pretty good job of doing it in a unique way that solves... Uh, unique needs uh, and not just like hey you know looks like tripods are popular maybe we'll make a tripod and you know just try to capture a market um, it's actual gear needs that we have when we're out hunting or we're out shooting um, so uh, like I said kind of long-range products and backcountry hunting uh, business started back in 2018 um, and it was just a side hustle like wasn't ever planned to be anything big certainly wasn't ever planned to take over my day job uh, or replace it. Um, so it's kind of cool to see this done that now. Um, and started like literally just with the ambition of helping a buddy generate revenue for his nonprofit. So it was like, ah, I think I got this product idea that could sell and you can have some of the money if, if it sells. Um, so it was pretty cool seeing that first product be super successful and then come up with more products and those be successful as well. And just kind of spiraling out of control, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I gotta say I like I like what you're doing just with ultralight, right? Um, yep. There's a lot of ultralight products out there that are. Um, it, it's kind of a kind of ironic because you're adding something else that's ultralight, yes. right? Whereas I feel like a lot of the products that you guys have, the approach is kind of like, all right, let's use what you already have, and mm -hmm. that is part of the ultralight, right? I mean. Um, obviously the, the, the third leg and kind of your whole tripod, um, system there uses mm -hmm. tracking poles, uh, which is just a great idea because most people are already taking them out. But even like the, the, the penny, the, or the, um, the, the pulley that you guys just came out with a few yep. days ago, um, you know, it uses paracord, which is what you already got. And it's literally the size of like a quarter. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah um, they're tiny. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I think we have, we have a photo. We need to put it up on social media, but we have them like next to a quarter, like a U.S. quarter coin. Yeah. And it is like dimensionally really close. And I think weight wise, they're actually lighter than a U.S. quarter, a little a little bit lighter than a U.S. quarter. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. That's and it's again, like all of our products come from some sort of need. So that came from a particular hunt that I was on where I got in a pinch and didn't have a pulley and needed one. So it's like, okay, got to fix this problem. But don't like I don't always need to have a pulley with me so if I'm gonna have it with me it has to be something ridiculously small and light so yeah I'll have it with me not even question it well and that thing is insane man that it you know because I think I saw that it had like a 1500 pound load capability so yeah. literally you could lift up a moose quarter if you wanted to with that little thing yeah yeah your rope honestly your rope is breaking before these things like long before these things do yeah. Um, yeah. So it's designed for 550 paracord, but it works, you know, up through 850 paracord. Um, but regardless, all of those, the tensile strength is breaking long before, long before the pulley is. Yeah. So some so, some healthy safety margins baked in there. <laughs> definitely. As as I'm sure you probably need to with something like that. That's going to be you know just bearing a an absolute ton of weight. Yeah. Um, but so so would you mind kind of just uh, for the people that maybe don't know. Um, that are interested would you mind just kind of breaking down kind of your whole glassing system like what you guys do and oh yeah how you the guys are different system? in the glassing yeah 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 so the the start of that it kind of we call it our quick stick system um so it's our system that utilizes your trekking poles and it, it builds on itself so the first product uh of that system is the quick sticks so they're these little black adapters and they'll snap over your poles and you bolt them on your poles and then you've got an adapter on each trekking pole that you have, and they these adapters just live there. So you're hiking along, you're hunting, they're with you there. Um, and these adapters allow you to put your trekking poles together and twist lock them so that they lock into place. So the first thing that that accomplishes for you from like the perspective of a hunter um, is you've got a shooting rest. So you've got a pair of shooting sticks. Um, so you can build, you know, build a support for a shot. Um, the next step of that uh, is our quick clip. So 
this quick clip is something that you would attach to your rifle um, or to the third leg we'll talk about in a little bit um, but it has this little like horseshoe clip deal on it and that will snap into place over the quick sticks so you can lock this thing into your quick sticks and this thing is usually locked onto your rifle so then you've got a bipod uh, so from the start of it uh, I think the quick clip was the second product in, in this line that, that we came out with. Uh, but from the beginning, like I knew I wanted my trekking poles to be a bipod uh, mm -hmm. and like connected to my gun. Coming from long range background, I knew I wanted to have an offhand free to manipulate a rear bag. Um, so we came out with the quick sticks first and, and uh, since day one, they'd all been machined with a ring around them to you know accept something. Uh, and I think from the beginning we had started prototyping, but we weren't selling from the beginning. And it was like a year later the quick click came out. So that's the, the second piece of the system. And then the third piece of that system is the third leg. So that you can lock into your trekking poles via your quick sticks, quick clip. Uh, and it essentially makes the third leg of a tripod. So then throw whatever head you want on top of there. Um, you know, we've of course got our ultralight Nighthawk uh, pan head, uh, which is a really, really nice product. Um, so then that's, you know, for our product, you know, whatever head you want on there, but with our head on there, then you've got this super light, like I think the whole thing, third leg, quick sticks, quick clip, and our pan head is like 17 ounces. So for that 17 ounces and the trekking poles you already have, you've got a pair of shooting sticks, you've got a bipod that connect to your gun, and you've got a glassing tripod with a really, really nice head on top of it. Yeah, no, it's it looks great, and I, I was just looking at some of the pictures on there. Look, you got there's a picture of somebody, and it looks like they have a seek outside pack. So thanks for yep. thanks for repping that there. Um, I've packed out a few animals in in my seek pack. <laughs> nice, nice, but using it as as kind of like a backrest, and then the the backpack is mm. the as the forerest. So, I mean, just this whole system it seems very versatile, <clears throat> and I mean total weight, I guess. With all that stuff, what with your trekking poles, you're probably looking around two, three pounds. Um, yeah, probably two and a half pounds, I guess, Dep depending on the trekking pole. Two pounds, yeah. a little over two pounds. Yeah. Um, but for but, most guys, you're already taking your trekking poles. Um, yeah. So I mean, like exactly. factor definitely factor that that weight into your your pack weight. Uh, but you got to decide, like, well, am I taking trekking poles anyways? And if yeah. you are, most people are going to consider that free weight then, because you're already yeah. taking them. Well, and I mean, I was just going to say like an ultralight tripod is usually around two pounds. You know, oh, yes. Two, three pounds. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> but then you're also, you can eliminate your bipod on your rifle. If you want, mm -hmm. you can eliminate, you know, all sorts of things there. Um, not to mention you can, uh, am I correct in uh, the assumption that with that quick sticks adapter, uh, you can use that to, can you use it to like make essentially like a, a long pole out of yep. your your uh your your uh uh hiking why am i forgetting the name right now the yeah, trekking, trekking poles. Poles. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah that actually that actually is another i kind of forget to talk about it in the quick stick system because it's like it's two velcro straps like yeah if you've got the quick sticks on your trekking poles you can lock them inverted so then you've got a tall a, you know a, a tall pole essentially mm -hmm. or a tp post mm -hmm. um so naturally it would want to spin. So just take two pieces of Velcro webbing and wrap that around, around your trekking poles when it's, you know, when they're connected inverted and then that'll prevent them from twisting and the quick sticks prevent them from collapsing on top of each other. Um, so we do sell some Velcro straps that are made in the USA and they're, they're like ridiculously light. I think I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I think there's something like a 10th of an ounce for two of these Velcro straps wow. and like I set them up where they just like live on my trekking poles all the time. Um, so for essentially zero weight penalty, then you can connect your trekking poles upside down and have, have a really tall TP pole. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so, so yeah, you had, you had mentioned in that last, uh, last sentence there, um, made in the USA, uh, yep. in our previous conversations, I could tell that that is a very important thing to you. Um, where obviously we, uh, do our best to source everything in the USA and we can, you know, we make everything here in the USA, right here in Colorado. Um, would you just ex explain why that is so important to you? Yeah, there's, it's kind of multifold, I guess. So, um, we enjoy making our products in the USA and that, that is our genuine priority to keep it that way. Um, there's been some other products that we've wanted to pursue that have just slowed down because we're trying to source them in the USA or source materials at a competitive price. Um, 
but it's, it's multifold, I guess, the reason why. Um, I would rather employ, you know, U.S. citizens. I would rather keep, you know, keep money inside of our own country to help out our own people for that sort of reason. Um, and then kind of getting beyond that, too. Um, and I think I'm not so strong against any overseas manufacturing, but I am particularly strong against having products made in China. Mm-hmm. Um and the reason for that is just on like a grander geopolitical scale, they are a near peer competitor with us and have pretty clear ambitions of, of, you know, like say taking over Taiwan, for example, that is an action that, that I personally am not uh, on board with. And I think beyond that is, is an action that, you know, if it happened is not going to go well for the United States and for my, for my friends and for my family. So from that sort of lens, it's like, why would I send my money or intellectual property to a country with those sort of goals? Um, so that's a, I don't know if that gets talked about too much, but that's totally a, a, a focus uh, and a reason of mine for very specifically with China, not, not sending products over there to be manufactured, even though you can get those products manufactured way cheaper Mm-hmm. and then introduce your product at a, a much more competitive price. Um, ultimately, there is a price that's being paid. So is it is that price being paid by, um, say, Seek Outside or Wise Precision, who's doing the manufacturing in the U.S. and um, our customers because we have to pass along some of that cost to them? Uh, or is that cost being paid by all of us, you know, friends and family and, and other U.S. citizens because of the potential uh, much grander geopolitical uh, ramifications of supporting a, a near peer and a rival. Um, yeah, no, and that's a good. That's definitely a a, a very patriotic reason. And <clears throat> you know, I I also think it's very important to have you know your products. You know, and there are some places that you can you know send your products to have them made at a little bit cheaper cost, but it's still not as quite not quite as morally you know, questionable as sending it over to China. But I still, I believe that, you know, if you have your products made by people in the U.S., and and I don't know about your company, um, but I know at least here, you know, most of our seamstresses, they're going camping on the weekends. You know, mm-hmm. they're all of our, basically our customer service realm. We're, we're all big hunters, big fishermen. You know, we, we, we take three-day weekends because we want to we want to be able to go out and enjoy the the things and it creates a lot of good ideas as well you know coming from the seamstresses and the design team and stuff like that and i think it's it's super important to have your products made by people that you know are using them it, it creates like a passion there's a higher quality control um just right out of the gate there so the, it's definitely a multifaceted benefit yep and i would totally agree with that yeah anytime that you can I mean, from a business owner, it's it's so easy because like most small businesses like mine are founded by somebody who has a hobby and has a passion and then mm-hmm. an idea springs out from that. So if you can maintain that hobby and that passion as a business owner or as an employee in that business, um, just like you've mentioned, all your people are going out hiking or hunting or fishing on the long weekend and they're using your gear and they're coming up with ideas. Um, no, that is absolutely a, a, a huge value, um, to manufacturing your products in house as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let's move on to my next question here. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, rifle shooting positions in the backcountry, and, yep. you know, very, we kind of touched on it earlier, uh, just in using the, the quick sticks there. Um, but I guess, Ideal conditions, if you had to choose, what's your ideal like shooting position in the backcountry there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you two answers. And one, I'll give you the ideal. And then the second one is I'll give you my go-to. Because okay. the ideal is almost, it almost never exists. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least where I hunt. So the ideal is prone and you've got a front bipod and you're six to nine inches off the ground. And you've got a rear bag and it's relatively flat terrain and you're shooting at a relatively shallow angle up or down that's that's from my perspective a pretty ideal you're close to the ground you've got a lot of ground contact with your body you're pretty stable your rifle's very stable Um, 
I've never had that shot, like literally ever in the mountains. Um, so the second position, my go-to position, uh, which is still extremely stable, uh, but it's way more versatile, is some sort of tall bipod or shooting sticks. In my case, it's, it's almost always the quick sticks as a front support. Um, and, and I prefer it with the quick clip. So it's actually connected to my rifle. So it's bipod mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like best case is a tall bipod up front and then take your pack off and set that up as a rear rest. And then I'm either in a kneeling or a seated position. So what I like about that, why that's kind of my go-to is it's still extremely stable. You've still built a front support with that tall bipod, whatever it is. And you've got a rear support, a rear bag with your backpack. Um, so not quite as stable as prone cause you're a little bit taller off the ground. You've got a little bit longer moments to move around, but still very solid. But the benefits that it adds as opposed to prone is you get above the ground further. So you're above the brush. You've got a little bit more freedom of movement in your body for, um, off camber shots for high incline and decline angle shots, um, or even just like side hill type supported shots. Um, so a lot more freedom of movement there. Uh, and the other thing that I find I use quite a lot with this sort of position is I'll run, I'll drop into position, get set up on an animal, find out it's moved somewhere where I then need to move my shooting position. I've already got my front support connected to my rifle and my pack is my only loose thing. So I literally just grab my pack with my offhand, pick up my rifle with my, with my primary hand and then stand up and move. Mm -hmm. So super easy to change positions. Um, and as I mentioned before, still a very stable shooting position and you're tall enough and flexible enough, given enough maneuverability to uh, manipulate around whatever the environment presents you with. Uh, nice. Just most of the time, I, I don't I don't I don't ever find concrete slabs out there. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. Well, and you, you brought up a really good point there. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you see I feel like you see a lot of a lot of guys out there with, uh, you know, they got their little tiny bipods pods that you know maybe extend to 12 inches and it's great if you're like up on a hill and you know you can lay prone but I know for me personally it seems like for you um you know a if there's a lot of brush mm-hmm. not gonna work right if there's if there's any grass here Colorado we got a ton of oak brush so you're always trying to you know trying to maneuver but then also if you're on a, a steep um hillside you know you, you you want more adjustability there um, mm-hmm. so definitely a, a big benefit to using those trekking poles. Um, so like with that, with that bipod system, I assume that you could essentially, uh, you know, most trekking poles go up to what, uh, 54 like inches, 54, usually. yeah, 50, I was going to say 58, but f- yeah, probably 54. Um, so you could essentially, you probably couldn't use it as a standing, but definitely as just a straight up kneeling bipod, right? Like you, you don't yeah. have to have, you can have those tripod, the, the trekking poles fully extended, right? To use that bipod yeah. system. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I'd say if you're, if you're on flat terrain and trying to do like a near standing shot, you're definitely doing like a, a really high crouch shot mm-hmm. or you'll do kind of like if you've seen PRS style shooting on, on like specifically the PRS barricade, you'll often see guys where their legs are almost all straight and they just bend at the hips into mm. their rifle. Um, so then you would accomplish kind of a, a position like that as well. Um, or I even had like the other thing is really nice, like talking specifically steep terrain and off camber shots. Um, I think it was this 2019 Idaho elk for me. I call it my lazy boy shot. Um, I had the trekking poles, so they're super long and legs completely extended, like as far as they could go. And it was a cross canyon shot. So I'm literally just laying on my back on the opposite hillside of the opposite, you know, opposite canyon of this uh, animal of this elk and trekking poles fully extended to get elevation on the front of the gun and then pack underneath my armpit as a rear rest and just laying on my back to accomplish that. Um, so yeah, having that, having that tall bipod, um, is, it's, you know, even for a scenario like that is extremely critical. Like without that, and that was, wasn't like a crazy far shot, but 560 yards, I'm not, I'm not taking that shot unless I'm supported well. So if I didn't have a tall bipod and I had the normal six by nine, I would have been, you know, running around the hillside trying to find a little bench or a shelf that was close enough to keep me within range. Um, so it's just like, if you're already, you already have your trekking poles, like my thought is they should just do more for you. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, 
a uh, lot of bipods out there. there. There's different ways that they extend and, and, you know, different adjustments to them. But if you're already familiar with your trekking poles, you know that it's, you know, you already know that system on how to extend them and adjust them to however you want. Uh, can you can you use that? I was I would assume that um, with the right adapter, um, you could probably use that third leg to essentially get a tripod uh, shooting, essentially to to shoot off of. Yeah, we've had customers that have actually shot animals off the third leg. You know, whole quick stick system tripod. Mm-hmm. Um, I've thrown my gun up on there and I've you know, just shot at targets just to see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, personally though, and, and this is a statement beyond the quick stick system tripod. This is for me in a hunting scenario, just a general statement on shooting from tripods. Um, they seem easy because you just throw your gun on there and you can sort of let it go and manipulate it. So they, they seem easy in that sense, but they're challenging in the mountains, uh, because it's, more difficult to find a stable level platform to set it up for you know for the purpose of shooting a rifle off of mm-hmm. and they're not as stable as a front support and a rear support uh, even though you're locked into this tripod even if it's a really big beefy tripod you've still got a finite point that it's pivoting about on your ball head or your pan head mm-hmm. um, if you're shooting a rifle it's probably going to be a ball head that you're shooting off of so you've still essentially just got a single point of contact at some point um, so when I shoot, I find I am far more stable with some sort of front support and a rear support um, versus versus a tripod. So I'll go back to our, our quick stick system tripod. Like I said, we've had people that have shot animals off of them. Um, for me, it's just it takes longer to set up, and I'm not changing positions as fast as I am with just you know trekking poles up front and pack in the back, um, and not as stable as that either. So I just for me, I don't see any benefit to doing that. Um, but we have had people do it, and some people like shooting off a tripod. Um, but its primary purpose is intended for for an ultra light glassing uh, tripod. Yeah, nice. Um, so I want to go back to the the pinch pulley here. Um, mm-hmm. You guys, while well, this is this is June, this probably this podcast probably won't be out until closer to hunting season, which is perfect timing. But you had said that you had a specific story or maybe a a few (laughs) stories that uh, led to the invention of this ultralight pulley. Uh, Would you go into that a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah, this was, so I think this was that, that, what I know it was, it was that same um, hunt that I just told you by Lazy Boy Shot. Um, So that was my animal that killed on that Lazy Boy Shot. My buddy killed a mature bull, a big mature bull. And it's, it's pretty fun. Like just thinking about the story, I get a smile on my face. Um, <clears throat> we had, uh, killed a couple of animals, you know, a couple elk together before. So I thought that we knew what a big animal was, but neither of us had ever killed a, a mature bull or a big body bull. Mm-hmm. And he killed a mature big body bull. And this bull was ripping downhill. And when he died, he plowed head first under this big blowdown. Uh, it was quite the mess, like, it, you know, just head plowed under their antlers all ripped back and his shoulder was buried up underneath this thing. It took us well over an hour just to get him unburied from this tree that he had piled himself under and literally pulled like five or six feet back from that tree to hang his belly over a stump to start cutting on him. And it was so funny, the first time that we grabbed onto him and did the whole like one, two, three pull, we pulled and he like didn't budge at all like not even a little bit and we just like turned and looked at each other and our eyes got really big and like oh boy this is going to be different um and it was totally different so there was yeah there was a couple of things we said is uh first thing his brother was playing uh college all the time so we need him here please Mm -hmm. and the other thing is like we've gotta gotta have some sort of pulley system for these scenarios but neither of us carried them because like ah we don't need pulleys there's two of us like yeah. We'll manage or yeah, maybe there is a chance that we might need it, but we're not gonna need it. Yeah. And then it turned out we needed it. So it was yeah, it was probably I feel like I, it was pretty quick that I had started thinking about the pinch bullies and how to accomplish that in a super compact super light package. I think it was for sure that that winter I had started thinking about it and working on it. Yeah. Um, and like the quick sticks that came from 
my first black bear that I killed, which was my first big game animal that I ever killed, um, I had the six by nine bipod and I was running around trying to find a prone shot to kill this bear. It was like, it was way more challenging than shooting, shooting in the gravel pit or shooting at the range. So I was already carrying trekking poles. It's like, okay, well, how do I solve this problem? So that was another one that like got back from that hunt and instantly started working on something. Um, but yeah, the pinch pulleys, that was, yeah, that, that big animal that we had to move, uh, that was kind of the impetus for having some ridiculously small, ridiculously light pulley. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, I I think there have been somewhat similar things out there before, but most of them are, you know, much, I I could imagine yours is weight wise beats the crap out of all the, all the ones existing. Cause most of them are like rock climbing, um, kind of pack rafting stuff where ultra light is not, I mean, with that thing, you, you just throw it in your, your kill kit and I mean, shoot, I I think the, the biggest worry would be it getting lost, (laughs) just (laughs) flipping through the cracks, but I mean, it's, yeah, we put a, a high polish on it. It's a stainless, you know, a a high carbon hardened stainless steel. So we put a high polish on it because I feel like there's just tiny little things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I don't know if your listeners will see this on YouTube, but there they are. Like that's. But yeah, tiny I, little you, things. If you go on the website, it literally is right next to a quarter, and it's smaller than a quarter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's 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 I, I definitely you know um, last year in New Mexico, right? Uh, we we me and my brother and my dad we got a got a bull down right at dark, you know, and and it was one o'clock before we packed the first load out, and um, you know we're gonna come come for the second one in the morning obviously bears around so we had to hang the quarters up in a tree and you know that's always just such a trying to find the right tree branch and with mm-hmm. but with the pinch pulley you just you, you tie it up to whatever tree you want um and then just hang it up like that and it, it just seems to make it so much easier so definitely yes got to be a and i would say kit. in that scenario of like you're an elk hunter i'm an elk hunter um you know how challenging it is to hang quarter bags in a tree. Like mm-hmm. you, you, if you don't have a pulley of some sort, like you need it, two people. Mm-hmm. You need somebody pulling on that line and somebody with a big stick trying to push that quarter up at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you're solo hunting, you're not hanging your meat in a tree, or at least not high enough to get it away from bears or cougars. Um, you can get some airflow around it, but you're not you're not protecting it from predators. Um, unless you have some sort of pulley. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just like what you said so many times, especially with antlered animals and especially with elk, because that head is what, 200 pounds, <laughs> probably not that much, but it's heavy. And yep. you know, you, they, they never seem to expire in a place that's, uh, easy to, to maneuver them. So just, and, uh, you know, you could probably use it. I just think of so many different ways you can use that thing, especially as a solo hunter. Yes. It's yeah. If you got to take off a rear elk quarter. Oh yeah. Like, man, that would be, and maybe you don't have trees around you, but if you do, that would be pretty sweet to tie a rope on its leg and just hoist its leg up to get that hip opened up to start cutting on it. Yeah. And then something tied to it. So it doesn't like go flying down the hill when you cut it loose. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, if you're, if you're doing that solo, uh, which I never have on an elk, um, you know, you're like just trying to fight with that back quarter when you're trying to get in there is mm-hmm. even just doing it with two people is tough. So yep. yeah, that, that's, that's pretty, pretty awesome system there. I'm, I'm stoked to, uh, to add it to my system here this, this fall. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, um, you guys got anything, I mean, obviously you just came out with a, a new product, but anything that yep. you can, uh, hint on for in the in the future here oh yeah we've got we've got a substantial backlog of products that we need to work on um i finally a couple of years ago like smartened up and started writing my ideas down instead of like you know being out in the woods like oh yeah this would be nice and then get home and like oh what was that idea i had so now i write them down so we've got a substantial backlog um the the one that's close enough that uh um Right, for sure will be out this winter um, is a binocular adapter that is, of course, with our ultralight theme, it'll carry that on. 
um, and does some unique novel things that, that nobody else is doing. Nice. Um, and, and hopefully that's kind of a theme with, with all of our products. Like we're, we're genuinely trying to provide real innovation and not just like, oh, it looks like people are having success with this. Let's make our own thing. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, so that the Bino adapter is, is the one that's close enough along. But um, we've got three products that we're currently uh, prototyping, like actively, physically prototyping right now. But that's that's the closest that, that I can talk about. Nice. Heck yeah. That's that's good to hear, man. I'm excited. Uh, I guess one one more question for you, um, and this mm-hmm. might be a little bit of a curveball because we hadn't talked about this previously. But I'm just curious curious if you have. Uh, it doesn't have to be one thing. It could be a, a few things. Uh, but ultralight things in your kit that you know you felt were game changers and not relating to to wiser precision. Oh, yeah. Obviously, all your stuff is game changing. <laughs> Yep. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll go, maybe I'll give you a couple of, a couple of products. Um, one in general that I think applies to anybody hunting is a foam sit pad. Like it's one of those deals like, yeah, I don't need a sit pad. I'm tough. I can just sit on a rock, but gosh, a foam sit pad is so nice. Like, especially if you've got long glassing sessions, it's going to make that glassing session so much more comfortable because you've got a little cushion. But the big thing too, especially when you're doing first light, last light glassing sessions, when it's getting colder, especially if you're like October modern elk or November mule deer, um, having that foam insulation between you and the rock you're sitting on or you and the ground is huge. Just keeps your butt warm. Um, so that's, that's one that's like a silly thing that I didn't used to carry because it's like, Oh, I'm tough. I don't need that. And then I started carrying. It's like, Oh, this is pretty sweet. Um, and the other one specifically through the lens of, um, North Cascades, um, Alpine type hunts that I do a lot. Um, I imagine this applies pretty heavily to Alaska as well, um, is a pair of micro spikes. Um, those Mm. things have been like absolute game changers on numerous occasions and just a safety factor too. Like some of the areas that I hunt that we have to go through really steep off, off camber stuff. And it's all that alpine like shrub isn't the right word but there's like a like a, a blanket of shrubbery on the ground yeah, and it like gets a little wet and it's slick and yeah. you can't like if you're just in boots you know there's too much brush to actually like dig a toe into the earth so micro spikes through that sort of stuff have been you know a game changing because i can move faster and more confidently but then just a safety thing too like i'm sure they've saved me from a few nasty falls um yeah, I've, I've never heard of anybody saying that, but yeah. So you're basically, you're talking like uh, almost like ice climbing type yep. spikes to, to throw on your boots. Yeah, yeah, I don't I haven't done like the full, um, there's like micro spikes and crampons. Um, so I think the crampons are the ones that uh, actually affix to special boots, like you have cuts in your boots, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm remembering correctly. So there's micro spikes and there's some like really chintzy little, micro spikes that that like they don't really do anything what i wear actually have you know about half inch half inch to three quarter inch thick steel spikes off the bottom of them Mm. and it's like this this webbing with a a rubber you know essentially a really big rubber band and you'll put this mesh chain webbing spiked webbing on the bottom of your boot and stretch this rubber band over the sides of it and so it, it clamps onto your boot that way um so those have been like seriously huge help for the the areas that i hunt interesting Um, yeah yeah even like you know getting into those areas they're super helpful but especially like coming out with a heavy pack and you've got to go downhill on that stuff then then it's kind of the same deal with trekking poles yeah like people might think that you know not so much anymore but a decade ago only sissies carried trekking poles yeah until everybody started carrying them yeah yeah now they're yeah, definitely well worth it. And just having that support with uh, an extra 80, 90 pounds on your back, that's it's game-changing for sure. Yep. So, Well, cool, man. Well, uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to sign off with here? Or? No, I don't, I don't have any cool, cool sign-off phrases yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we definitely appreciate you jumping on, man, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. We, Thank you. We, we definitely appreciate what you're doing with all the innovation over there and 
um, yeah, excited to, to see what you guys do in the future here. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.